good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces, and welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, in this podcast, we're going to be talking about Pride Month. We're going to be leading off with Proverbs 11.2 and 16.18, and we'll have several other scriptures that we read today, and we'll put those in the overview. But with Pride Month, and whether it should be paraded or not, let's just dig right in. And good day to everybody out there in podcast land. This is Pride Month. We're asking the question, should pride be paraded? Mm. According to scriptures, nope, you don't parade your pride. Randy's is going to read a couple of Proverbs here, so listen up. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Is it not ironic that this group has chosen pride to be their name? Of course, they do not understand the Bible. We get that. But for we who are Christians, I think it's a God thing. Hmm. And we should take note of that. Here's an influencer around the world for young people, Miley Cyrus. What I preach is people fall in love with people, not gender, not looks, not whatever. What I'm in love with exists on almost a spiritual level. Hmm says Miley. And then Howard Dean, who once ran for president. From a religious point of view, if God had thought homosexuality is a sin, he would not have created gay people. That's his take on it. Well, what's going on? Pride Month is being celebrated by, and I'm just ticking off a few of these, Bud Light, and we all know the recent controversy there, Target, which also got some pushback, even Cracker Barrel has gotten into it, Garth Brooks, here in Nashville, opening up a new bar and has gotten into the controversy. The L.A. Dodgers celebrated by bringing in a bunch of anti-Catholic Christian LGBT plus 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 whatever people. Um, one of the main entrances was blocked by protesters just uh, this weekend. And uh, curiously enough, they lost the game 15 to nothing, the worst defeat they've had since 1898. <laughs> and some people are saying, we think that's a God thing, too. Uh, Cyril's, or just bad baseball. Oh, just bad, <laughs> yeah. just really bad baseball. Uh, in which case, God would have them improve their game. Yeah, yeah. We check our podcast on excellence, if you That's will, right, yeah. and you'll see that. Um, Cereal promoting it. Kellogg's, our own military, unfortunately, is getting woke and promoting LGBT and the Pride Month. Disney's been into it for a while. NBC, ABC, CBS, streaming outlets, Hollywood. Elite universities, public schools, as we will see, uh, even Starbucks, but they backed off. Then the union said, we're going to sue you. you got, you got to do it. Uh, the Biden administration, big celebration, flying the transgender flag right up there with old glory. Uh, the Biden Pride event uh, ends up devolving into a transgender topless show on the White House lawn. So that was kind of uh, disappointing. Yet President Biden says the LGBTQ People are the bravest, inspiring people I know. Well, are Christians the only objectors to this Pride Month time? I'm going to quote here a woman who's well-known in some circles, uh, Camille Paglia. She's a well-known feminist and writer, philosopher, um, and I've been reading her writings uh, over the decades, quite frankly. I came across her, uh, when, I don't know, years ago, and I was just saying, well, here's another feminist. I'll read what she's got to say. And actually, she had some uh, serious 
things to present and some truths. She's a classical feminist, nothing like the LGBT thing we got today. Here's one of the reasons why I like her. She is an atheist, but nonetheless, you can, God's truth is everywhere. All truth is God's truth. Mm. So uh, we don't want to be prejudiced against people who might have an insight to truth that we can help and connect with. In a uh, 2017 interview with the Weekly Standard, Paglia stated, quote, it is certainly ironic how liberals who posture as defenders of science when it comes to global warming, a sentimental myth unsupported by evidence, flee all reference to biology when it comes to gender. So I'm thinking, she may be an atheist, but hey, amen, uh, mm -hmm. lady, we agree with that. Mm. Well, in her uh, YouTube, Video Lessons from History, she makes her case that the current transgender mania is a sign of cultural collapse. Here's her quote. Um, let me set it up. She's talking about androgyny. Androgyny is when you have a confusion or a mixture of male, female, and you don't know which is which, or maybe you see someone and you can't tell the male, female, whatever. Androgynous people have occurred throughout history, that's true. And she says, quote, as a civilization is starting to unravel, you will find again and again that it moves toward androgyny. Well, I haven't had a chance to read all of her on this, but she may be right. But what makes today's collapse different is its global manifestation involving many cultures, not just one. So, but we quote her to show that she's obviously not a Christian, but she gets that this is not a good thing. In fact, she said this business of puberty blockers and doing surgery on 10-year-olds, mm. she says, is evil. Yeah. Now, we could argue and say, well, if you don't believe in God, you got no basis for that. But on the other hand, she sees it as evil. I believe her. I believe she sees it as evil. So she's, she's on our side on that. Um, now, before I get to um, Pope Benedict, <laughs> I'm out, uh, he's dead, I know, right? But I, I was a big fan of his during uh, his reign. Uh, here's a quote from uh, Breitbart News on June of, uh, well, this month, 15th. Uh, the headline, Pope Francis showers gay ministry with praise during Pride Month. Quote, Pope Francis has written a third supportive letter to, and since the last time we did a podcast on LGBT, uh, they have expanded their alphabet. Pretty soon they'll have to go through other people's alphabets to get their agenda going. Pope Francis has written a third supportive letter to LGBTQQIAAP2S plus advocate, Father James Martin. And of course, he's well known in the Catholic circles, and obviously there are a lot of good Catholics who don't like his agenda. Well, this Father Martin is promising prayers, that uh, is Pope Francis, through, through Father Martin, is promising prayers for the success of a pride conference to be held in New York this month, end of quote. Now, his predecessor, Pope Benedict, had a different take on this. Uh, I liked Pope Benedict, and when people would say, well, he's a pope, you're not a Catholic, what do you like him? I said, because he is a believer in Christian truths. Mm. Just listen to him. He's Catholic, so we're going to disagree on some things, but I really like the man's approach toward doctrine. Well, <clears throat> Dr. John Haas, a moral theologian and former member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, uh, said in his commencement address at uh, Christendom College just last month, May 13th, but in 2014, in a conversation he had with Pope Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict told him the next great challenge the church is going to face is gender ideology. 
and it will be the ultimate rebellion against God the Creator. Now keep that in mind, we're coming back to it. The ultimate rebellion against God the Creator. Well, end of quote, how do we get here? Well, this is the result of the evolutionary myth. There is no God. If there is no God, there's no God who set boundaries. Then eventually you get to the point, well, then there's only fluidity and change. Nothing's permanent that God has ordained. God as creator is the foundation from which everything else flows. Well, listen to this quote from Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Yes, worship in heaven uh, in this uh, spiritual revelation that John's getting uh, to God the Creator. That's chapter 4. Now, when you move to chapter 5, there's a worship directed toward the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who redeems us by his blood. And this is not a chronological just uh, coincidence. Creation is first, God the Creator, and then redemption flows out of God as the Creator. They are joined together. Uh, the final call for salvation comes in Revelation 14 before the final judgments of the seven bowls are emptied on planet Earth, and then we have the return of Jesus depicted in Revelation 19. And it's the last call on planet Earth to turn to the Creator. Now hear that. It's the last call to turn to the Creator and glorify Him, the author of the eternal gospel. Because why eternal? It starts with God the Creator. Listen to this as Randy reads it from Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Right. It is a call to worship the Creator and come over to his side. And remember what Pope Benedict said, the last great rebellion will be against God the Creator. Why not a call to follow the Lamb, which we saw in Revelation 5, the Lamb that is slain. He goes up to the throne to get the scroll that is the book of Revelation. And um, earlier in chapter, this same chapter 14, uh, they sing the song of the Lamb. So why doesn't the angels say, worship the Lamb? Very important, and hear me on this, because creation and redemption are forever forged together. If you deny him as creator, logically, there's no point in seeing him as the recreator in mm -hmm. redemption. Mm -hmm. Listen to Randy, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If there's no creator, then we cannot be recreated in Christ. The help we need comes first from the creator, the maker of all things. Psalms 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Boy, that's a great verse to have. It's easy to memorize. Where does your help come from? The one who made heaven and earth. And listen to this again, Psalms 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Once again, that's where our help is. It begins with God the Creator. A lot of people believe, well, we can believe evolution and still be Christians. Logically, you cannot. And eventually what happens is, by the time you take the people who believe that and move to the next generation and finally hit the third, 
they won't be believing that either. Mm-hmm. It's, it'll go away, as we've been seeing in this culture already. So two things, not just in our culture, as Camille Paglia talks about, but around the world, this rebellion against the Creator increases. And every day it becomes more and more a worldwide phenomenon, just as Pope Benedict said he believed was going to happen back in 2014. So what does the scripture say? First of all, listen to this from Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see the day drawing near. What is that day? That's the day of Jesus' return. As we will see, is preceded by the two great events. But first of all, that day also affects us as Christians, not just the whole world. Listen to Randy Reed, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right, so we Christians, and we'll see it again at the end of this podcast, we're subject to uh, the discipline and judgment of the Lord, as is the whole world. But Judgment starts with us, actually. Yeah, Yeah. that's what Peter says. Yeah. Uh, judgment begins first with the house of God, and it begins with us first, what will become of those who are ungodly. Mm. So the Lord has, as we will see when we get to the end, a great concern about we who are Christians. We're not exempt, though, from his judgment, and certainly the world is not. So let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a prophetic presentation and see how current events can be understood as we have above described. And Randy is going to read from 2 Thessalonians 2, the first four verses. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or by a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Yes. Important passage, the most important, uh, given the subject we're at. And again, we're not going to do an exposition of every sentence, but we want to zero in on the main things that we're concerned about in this podcast. First of all, this man of lawlessness who otherwise throughout Christian history has always been called the Antichrist and 1 John chapter 2 that's what he's referred to as he says he's going to come into the uh, temple of God and take his seat so he's obviously it's a building that's the first thing that's clear from just reading it the word naos is the Greek word for the dwelling place of a deity or temple so where is this temple of God Uh, it's not in Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 AD others believe based on some passages which I'm not going to go into because I can't find it there. I've looked over the years. They say the temple is going to be rebuilt. I don't find it in the Old Testament. Certainly don't find it in the New Testament. What I find is what we're going to see is a temple in heaven. It's not the church. 
because if it were the church, it'd be a church building. So what? Is he going to go into every church building on the planet? No, it's not the church. It's God's temple where he manifests himself first and foremost, which is in heaven. This is the audacious claim. This is why Paul says he goes into the temple of God like he just walks right into heaven and sits down and says, I'm the guy. I'm God. God's temple, according to scripture, old and new, as we will see, is where he manifests himself first and foremost, and that is in heaven. That's where his true temple is. Psalm 11:4, Randy. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. There you go. He's on the throne of heaven, in heaven, and makes judgments. Then we go from the Psalms to prophets. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool which is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? That's pretty clear. Then we go to the gospel accounts. Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Heaven is the throne of God. That's where this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, apparently says he's going to walk right in and take a seat. That's the audaciousness of it. Stephen, right before he's stoned, makes this proclamation in Acts 7, 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Right. He's rebuking them for putting too much trust in a temple on earth, making the point again and again. The real temple's in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. There you go. That's the seat that the Antichrist is talking about. I'm going to go in and take his seat in the temple of God. If he could do that, of course, God would be dethroned. <laughs> Look at Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. And Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There, finally in the book of Revelation, we get this revelation that one day uh, the temple as such will be gone, but God in a different glory will be there with the Lamb sitting high there in the city of God, the New Jerusalem. So the point is that this lawless one, this Antichrist, is claiming uh, what is not his, God's throne, and claiming a name, God, that he is not. It's the climax of all the idolatries of the past come to fulfillment in him. God's throne is his, and he is God, or so he proclaims. At Jesus' return, however, in the same passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, he will be vanquished. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. All right, so that's how it ends with the end of the lawless one, the Antichrist who claimed to be God and was going to take his place and sit down in the temple of God. That scene of Jesus coming back, I don't know if everybody would appreciate this analogy, but I think of Jurassic Park and the lawyer who was on the commode. <laughs> when the, I mean, it's going to be that effective and that dramatic. Yeah. So this uh, lawless one, that's what he's called, as I said also, 1 John chapter 2, the Antichrist, he's called lawless because he denies the law of God. The order God has posed, imposed upon creation. And it's not just the usual lawlessness 
since this is the climax of all earlier attempts of lawlessness instigated by Satan. Second thing, uh, go back to that passage, what Randy read, is the revealing of the Antichrist is preceded by a rebellion. Paul says, listen, that day, you, you've been told that Jesus has returned. No, he hasn't, because that day can't happen until the rebellion comes first. As to the word rebellion, if we go to BillMounts.com, the, the fellow who is used by all the seminaries I'm familiar with in the country for Greek, he defines the word rebellion as a falling away or actual rebellion, which is mostly what it's translated, or apostasy. And in the Greek New Testament, here it is referred to as the rebellion. That is, the definite article precedes it in the Greek. That is not just any rebellion, but the last and final one against God the Creator. What has already been going on will reach a climax. Well, what kind of rebellion has been going on and on? Here we go. Listen carefully to this. This is the current rebellion that's been going on through history since, since time again and since uh, Jesus came to earth and went back to heaven. Romans 1, 18 through 25. It's a little lengthy, but listen up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, so clearly that's a rebellion against God the Creator, as Paul describes it. Now, we talked earlier about boundaries were crossed. All right, listen to this as as Randy continues with verses 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right. Be alert to the boundaries that were, closed, uh, uh, were crossed, violated, transgressed in that passage. Notice, again, it's against the Creator, God. And what kind of boundaries are we talking about? Let's move on to verses 26 and 27. For the, this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, a clear demarcation of the crossing of boundaries. Keep that in mind. And then Paul goes on to depict various forms of other rebellions, which in fact are crossing lines of boundaries, especially societal-wise, or parental-child-wise, or government-to-citizen-wise, however it's done. It's violation of boundaries all over the place. Verses 28 through 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. Yes. And keep in mind, the boundaries here basically are we are to love God and love our neighbor. And that's a big description there of the, all the ways in which that boundary can be transgressed. And it leads to, uh, as Paul later on says, you know, those who do such things know that uh, they should die. But only by God's patience, kindness, which we see in chapter 2 of Romans, does, uh, we have the, do we have the offer of salvation. Well, this rebellion has been raging for thousands of years. So when Paul says that the lawless one, Antichrist, is going to be destroyed by Jesus at his return, and that this Antichrist, the lawless one, won't be revealed until the rebellion takes place, it is obviously not the rebellion he describes in Romans 1. This rebellion, when Jesus returns that he puts down, is the final climactic rebellion against God the Creator himself. Boundaries are crossed and becomes climaxes in that there are no boundaries for Satan. Now, let's get that again. Boundaries are crossed, which is what we've been having for thousands of years, will then become at the climax of that, which is when there are no boundaries, for Satan rules through his man. By the way, have you noticed that in the LGBT and even in Pride Month, there is often allusions to Satan and remarks about that, which we have covered in previous podcasts. So, boundaries are crossed. Yeah, that's been going on since the fall of man. But this climax of this great rebellion, the rebellion, in which Satan is fully involved, uh, does indeed seem to obliterate boundaries themselves. Hence the call in Revelation 14 to repent, to give the Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth, the glory that is due Him, so as to escape the judgment that's about to, uh, to fall. So do we here at Christian Expectations believe that this will be the year that that happens, or next year, or in the decade? No, we have no knowledge of when He will return, because He made it clear you can't date it. On the other hand, as a good rabbi would say, we're supposed to make sure that we are truly assembling ourselves all the more as we see that day approaching. The New English translation, NET, on that verse says, not abandoning our own meetings as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and even more so because you see the day drawing near. Now, I'm just telling you my own personal testimony. I can see that day drawing near and current events of what's going on in this culture. We do believe we can see it approaching now in ways we couldn't have before. Because being a teacher of history, I'm not from, I never seen anything like this or found it. Why would this climactic rebellion lead the way to the Antichrist? Because as G.K. Chesterton said about a century ago, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Mm. So. Let us hear the uh, final verses of the passage from 2 Thessalonians 2 on this matter, and that's verses 3 to 4 and 9 to 10. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In the current culture, we certainly see that those involved in this whole pride business have absolutely no love for the truth. They're wide open to deception, Satan's, who in that day will be using all power 
Notice that phrase that Paul uses, all power to produce false signs and wonders. For whom? Well, for those who want proof that their rebellion against their creator is justified and even demanded. Remember Revelation 14. Here's a quote. Uh, this is from Beitbart, uh, June 15th of this year. Talk about rebellion. Here's a different kind of rebellion, a rebellion against the pride rebellion. Middle schoolers, says the headline in Breitbart, rebel against Pride Month indoctrination. Here's the quote. Adults in Burlington, Massachusetts, community are calling for action in response to middle school children tearing down pride banners and chanting, USA are my pronouns. Okay, that's the quote. And as the article goes on, apparently there were pride banner signs that were reportedly turned, torn down while other middle schoolers ch were chanting, USA, USA are my pronouns. Here's a quote from uh, the principal, and listen to this. Uh, her name is Purchase, P-E-R-C-H-A-S-E. Quote, I fully respect that our diverse community has diverse opinions and beliefs. I also respect individuals' right to express their opinions through clothing choices and freedom of speech. She wrote that down, and I guess, in reply to what's going on there, what had happened. But she goes on, when one individual or group of individuals' beliefs and actions result in the demeaning of another individual or group, it's completely unacceptable, the principal added. Uh, let me add as inside it, of course, if Christians are demeaned, that's okay, apparently. <laughs> principal Purchase went on to say that she stands in solidarity with the students and faculty that were allegedly impacted by the student-led protest. She says, quote, I am true, truly sorry that a day meant for you to celebrate your identity turned into a day of intolerance. Schools are supposed to be a safe place for all students and faculty, end of quote. And we simply say in response, a safe place except for those who cannot abide being forced to take part in something they don't believe in and believe and probably have been told by their parents is harmful to their spiritual life. I can remember the day when a student-led protest was just fine with the left. Mm. Pride and hypocrisy are inseparable. That's what I find in her statement. What is the trouble with pride? Pride. That's the trouble. Randy's going to read a passage from Isaiah 9, verses 8 through 10. But just for context, the first seven verses of Isaiah 9 is the great promise of Christmas and of the coming of the kingdom of God. Handel's Messiah is based upon it. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And uh, then it says in verse 7, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 7 at the end, yeah, says, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. But then we get verses 8, 9, and 10, which Randy will read. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Right. So this is interesting. Um, they're going to, according to the passage in Isaiah, going to make things better. But it's a prideful act, and they're going to be brought down in judgment. So is judgment coming? Yes, but we just we don't know when. But it is clear and more troubling now to see that day than before. And by the way, the calling for repentance from, uh, of the pride people is really an act of Jesus' love, 
I'm sure they don't see it that way. But listen to this. He calls everybody to repentance, including Christians. Now let's go back. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea, which in Revelation means it's for all the churches to listen to and take to heart. Randy? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Yes, Jesus is calling the church of Laodicea to repentance. Why? Because those he loves, he rebukes. Now, according to John 3.16, God loves the whole world. That's why he sent Jesus. So Jesus loves the world. He does the Father's will. And so he will also send a loving message of rebuke and discipline and a message of be zealous and repent to everybody involved in this matter of what's known as pride. So what to do? Um, well, I just, in my own personal life, I'm not much on protesting. So going out with a banner, uh, I don't even... I, I never put a bumper sticker. I think I put bumper sticker once on my bumper, and that was the end of it. I'm just That's just not me. But I do know from Scripture there are things we can do. One is to take to heart the Lord's Prayer, where it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And pray to be eager for his return. I think as Christians we've sort of lost that in our spiritual lives, an eagerness because it's been 2,000 years and Quite frankly, I think a lot of us just got used to that. Listen to Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. There we go, eagerly awaiting for him. And then this passage, which is so interesting, in 2 Peter 3, 10-13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there you have, um, we can speed up the day of the Lord by the way we live and how we conduct ourselves, by the testimony we give, all of that. And going back to 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter that's every chapter ends with something about the second coming. We just go back to chapter one. Here's how that chapter ends with the last two verses, verses nine and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the wrath to come, waiting for Jesus. Um, are we doing that? The scriptures teach us that he who exalts himself will be humbled, and that's not a good thing, the way it's going to be done in judgment. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. John understood this when he offered up the last prayer in the Bible, Revelation 22, 20 through 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Think of all the things John saw in that revelation given to him about the judgments of God coming upon the earth. And yet after all is said and done, when he sees the coming of the kingdom in the New Jerusalem in chapters 21, going on to 22, where it ends at verse 5, this is what he says. 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, come. And that, above all, is the Christian expectation. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure there might be questions and comments about it. So if you have questions or comments, feel free to post in our comment section or send your email to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations at gmail.com. And we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until next time, keep looking up.